class. Please be quiet. Shh. Shh. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. So welcome class, I am Fiona, host of What Am I Rolling, and I will be your teacher for films which feel relevant 10 years on 101. Today we'll be looking at District 9, a film that came out in 2009 by director and writer Neil Blomkamp. Let's take attendance and see who's joining us today. Can the first guests introduce themselves? Hello, I am Callum, your regular teacher of foreign cinema, coming from the faculty of the RPG Academy and producer of the Rollis podcast and the Rollis Present. Fantastic. And guests too, can they introduce themselves, please? Hello, I am Mira. I'm your substitute teacher today, popping in from the Girls on Tour podcast. Also, I'm curating the podcast zone at Dragon Meet this year, 2019. And I'm also an admin of one of the funniest pages on Facebook, the Dungeons and Dragons memes page. Fantastic. Before we start this class, a content warning here. When we're discussing this film, there are certain themes that come up in it which can be quite sensitive and can lead to some triggering moments. Themes that we might touch on is xenophobia, discrimination, exploitation, certainly violence and maybe a bit of cannibalism as well. If you feel uncomfortable with any of the issues, then maybe this is not the podcast for you. Another warning as well, there may be explicit language in this podcast, but we'll try and keep it safe for work as we go. So, let's go around and talk about our one-sentence review or sort of tagline for this film and what do we give a rating out of five on this. Callum, what did you think of this film? I would give it five stars. It's been a long time since I first saw it. I must say it was more violent and more triggering than I actually remembered it. And the the production value is still very, very high. I was very impressed by the effects, but not just from a special effects point of view, but how they were well integrated in the the cinematography. So it is definitely a five star. And uh, for my one little quote, it will be failing forward, the movie. Fantastic. And Mira, how did you find the film and what would you give it out of five? Personally, for me, for Mira watching the film, it would be zero out of five. But because I recognize it for a great movie with some funny bits and some drama and proper sci-fi premise, I would give it five stars for like a what I class a normal person. I have very particular sensibilities about films. I gave it the one-line description, The Office Meets the Fly. But actually, the thing it reminded me the most of was a series I watched by Chris Lilly called Summer Heights High. Ah, uh, yes, I did. I've seen that. It's such a good show. I think it was the accent and the kind of stereotypical cliches of various types of people, stereotypes. So yeah, I think we'll stick with The Office Meets the Fly, maybe by cul-de-sac of Summer Heights High. Fantastic. And my own review of it as well, I gave it four stars. I had a similar sort of thing where I'd never seen it before until you know, I was doing research for this podcast. And something about it, again, how, as uh, Callum said, the graphics haven't aged at all, really, and the story still feels quite relevant. It was something that really, for me, I've not seen a sci-fi film like that for a long time. And it was fascinating in a way, like something very, very different to the normal sort of guns blazing, aliens are here, and it showed a more sort of human side to things. So I 
It's similar to uh, Mira's review of it. I said the thick of it meets Kafka. And the reason I said the thick of it was because there was a, a very political sort of like people, you know, being small wheels in a big machine and they're sort of being made to make decisions which they themselves then realise are bad and trying to help in some other way. Maybe not as comedic as the thick of it, to be fair. And Kafka because, well, there is a metamorphosis of some sort. So... I'll do a quick synopsis of the plot, hopefully not giving away too many spoilers. A little bit of context as well. District 9 was actually adapted from Blomkamp's 2006 short film Alive in Joburg, which you can still view on Vimo just now. Similar to how that was, this film is sort of partially presented as found footage, featuring sort of fictional interviews with experts, news footage, interviews with the public, and footage from surveillance cameras as well, alongside a normal sort of feature-length film, as it were. The story begins in an alternate 1982, where a giant extraterrestrial spaceship arrives and hovers over the South African city of Johannesburg. When an investigation team finds over a million malnourished insect aliens, nicknamed prawns, inside, South African government relocates them into an internment camp called District 9. Over the years, District 9 turns into a slum, and the locals often complain that the aliens are ignorant lawbreakers who bleed resources from Johannesburg. 28 years later, during the government's relocation of aliens to another camp outside of the city, one of the confined aliens, named Christopher Johnson, tries to escape with his son and return home. Their plans come unstuck, however, when they cross paths with a multinational United bureaucrat, Vickers van der Meer. This story sort of explores themes of humanity, xenophobia, and social segregation. Interestingly enough, the title and premise of District 9 was inspired by events happening in recent history in Cape Town's District 6, in that era, there's sort of institutionalised racial segregation that existed in South Africa and Southwest Africa. It alludes to sort of District 6, this sort of inner city residential area in Cape Town, which was declared a sort of whites-only area by the government. So let's go around and talk about things we did like from the film before we sort of go on to critiquing it in more detail. Mira, what was your top three things you liked from this film? Okay, so historically, I will do anything to avoid movies containing violence and torture. But, you know, when I was asked to look at this movie, I kind of understood why it had to be shocking because of what you've just described. It was kind of sci-fi echo of this horrible thing that actually happened. So I think the good thing about it is that it stands as a kind of commentary on this situation that happened in South Africa. So I think that is a good thing. And I am a big proponent of sci-fi changing the world. I'm from the school of Gene Roddenberry. You know, he created this utopian universe with Star Trek. Sci-fi kind of showing humanity a way forward. As a geek, I like to believe in that. I really enjoyed the kind of the style of filming, which was kind of very knowing in that it kind of echoed the fly on the wall pastiche by way of the office. And I thought it looked absolutely perfect it looked so good it was completely immersive you didn't have that whole cgi problem where you're like oh my goodness this looks terrible and the prawns as they call the aliens you felt sorry for them and when they were being like victimized or hurt by the humans it was like the et effect right you fell in love with the characters even though they were like not real so those were three positive things from the movie and callum what about you what three things did you find from this movie that you enjoyed as you were saying, and a big of connection with Mira, that's not the sort of sci-fi movie that you see so much, especially with this level of production. 
I used to go to a film festival in Brussels where they would show a lot of slightly more independent science fiction movies and they would go into subjects like that. I remember one, for instance, with a, a pilot of uh, unmanned vehicle doing operations. And in the meantime, you had Mexican workers working in the US, but via remotely controlled robots. And it was similar in terms of team, but the production wasn't there. And what I mean, uh, you often see this little sci-fi movie, but they don't have this production. You often have novels which are spot on this kind of stories. It's uh, a metaphor. It's uh, inspecting events of history or ideas which are happening, which are often very violent, but which are too difficult for a lot of reasons. So it's really nice to have something which faces that. And it's been a long time since I had seen that in large production or something mainstream. I remember the movie was quite popular at the time. The second thing I really enjoyed with this, I was always waiting for this moment when we would sort of break the Hollywood bubble, when the, the means of production and the taste of the audience would finally burst and open to other countries and having something which is produced in South Africa with a very specific flavor is something I really welcome because it grounded the story. It gives just this slightly different point of view of things which just make it that much interesting. And I always hope that something like that would happen with China, for instance. It's sort of happening. So yeah, I was welcoming that this was this international feel on thing. I'm not sure I have a third one. I mean, I enjoyed the movie. I like the casting. I like when I see movies and the cast and the way also that the makeup and the photography is working with them makes them look like people I could run into in the underground. And that's definitely the case you see here with the main actor, who definitely could be really anybody, really. And I was reading some trivia, apparently had no intention of having a, an acting career before this movie. I mean, that's just your guy in the street and all the other people can be just really anyone, anyone working in a, in a corporate company. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree with your points. I think there's some really strong performances. And I liked what you said then, Callum, about the lean actor. I thought they were great in the sense of it did feel like they could be anyone off the street. And it, as a result, you felt that connection. That could be you. That could be your colleague. That could be just suddenly been put to the forefront as a project manager of this very big undertaking and not understanding the full implications of it. I think about a quarter way through the film, it is revealed that multinational United, as well as being sort of this organising of the aliens, their main objective is to sort out the weapons. And there's a point where Vickers, the lead character in this, he's sort of talking to the other people, like getting ready to go and evacuate the aliens into the next district. And he's talking to people saying, why do you need all this ammo? We don't need it. And then they're laughing at him. And it's that moment when he's put on the forefront of the field, going around evicting people, you know, knocking on the door. Hello, I'm Vickers. Please sign this. That sort of like no nonsense admin thing that this is my job is what I do. And then not realizing the full consequence of like people getting shot. Personally, I saw Vickers as more complicit, but then confronted with the reality at some point with the reality of it. I mean, he's not a nice guy. It takes quite a while before it becomes to be about more than its own situation. I mean, a bit like Pick of It. It reminds me a lot of real life situations. And thank God I'm not involved in projects like that. The very first people you see in the offices 
they're just like me in my in my own office. They're, we, they're doing their stuff, they're doing their spreadsheets. Like the opening shot of the film is Vickers putting on the microphone and saying, oh, this is what I do, you know, and it's about him at work. Then it cuts to the news footage and then a big shot of District 9 and then the title. It's that way of sort of at the beginning saying, like, this is ground zero, this is what it's like to work in the machine. Another point is I love found footage films and documentary style films. I think a lot of the time it's because I'm a big fan of horror films. There's the sort of the mounting dread and it's like, how did this footage get found? Because it's not explained and not says, whereas this one, it is explained and it's sci-fi. And that's another thing. I think people really rag on found footage films because they're like, oh, well, the story didn't make sense. Sometimes it's like, this is beyond belief and I can't buy into the realism of it. But I think certainly in District 9, the way it's presented, the way you see all these news reports, like at the beginning, there's like loads of cuts between interviews with various people from the 1982 and then nowadays, and here's footage of the aliens stealing food and stuff like that. I think it's more the way it's edited and the way it's sort of put together. Instantly, it's believable. It's almost like a real life documentary. And I felt as a result of that, and the way it started revealing like, oh, this event has happened. I was like, oh, wow, it's looking back on what has happened. And I was really excited to see like how this event unfolded through the eyes of post media and stuff like that. And then it stopped. And then we had the whole film and it stops doing the found footage until right at the end and it comes back in. I think that's why I didn't give it full stars because I thought it was such a unique way of presenting something, especially in the world of fake news just now. It's like, here are all the facts, but then you reading through the lines, you could tell Vickers is starting to change his mind about things and the moment when he sort of turns back to go and help the aliens. And I like the idea, if they had loads more interviews saying, we don't know why he did this, have those fleeting bits of footage where there is that sort of bit of doubt and in terms of rather than having it explained to us through the sort of feature-length film sequence. The other thing I will comment on before we sort of move on is at the time when this film came out, there was a huge sort of like response to it primarily because of the viral marketing that went with it. And they had lots of promotional things, like no aliens here. It's very iconic. So if you ever look up like District 9, go into Google search, and you see all these different, very iconic images. And it feels incredibly relevant to me right now. We're obviously in the middle of Brexit. Where I work, I work at a university in South London. For the last couple of months, there have been posters in bush shelters, posters on the wall saying you need to get ready for Brexit. A lot of the people who live and work in Tooting are from different communities that aren't necessarily white, aren't necessarily from the UK. And obviously it's a podcast, so you won't see this, but I am a white British woman. But working in that sort of environment where I was going into work every day and seeing these posters, knowing it's not targeted at me, but targeting people who I work with. And it felt, I can't imagine what it would be to be in that position, seeing these posters saying, go home, go away, you're not welcome here. That's why it really resonated me with this film, was that, Again, all these interviews of people saying they're not welcome here, they're troublemakers, they're this and the other. When we saw from the footage that they were stranded, they were malnourished, they would have died without our help. And it's just, you're on the ground and you hear people saying these things, but actually if you take a wider view, you can see something different. So I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that at all. Talking about iconic things and references, obviously because it's a South African movie, there's a lot of things about apartheid. When you look at the movie now, I mean, we had the B word, we can go to the T word. We got Trump, we've got the war, we got all of that. And for that District Night, it's still 
spot on still of today is shockingly still up to date with those issues maybe more even than it was when it was released i wonder if it could be released today uh, considering the conditions i'm always a fan of using fiction even blatantly fiction to talk about something which is very real mira do you have any thoughts on this i find it like incredibly uncomfortable viewing like i can respect the importance of you know, works like this. My mother is from India and my dad is from Scotland. So growing up, I remember graffiti. I remember the National Front was still a thing. And even in Africa, like when I go to visit in Africa and India, wherever you go, certain cultures are oppressed and being treated quite shabbily. So my normal thing about the cinema and movies for me is escapism and taking me out of a horrible reality to a fantastic or a happy place. It's tough viewing, but like nothing compared to the real stories behind it. Touching on it briefly, we won't stay on it too long. I know it feels like very negative talking about these things, but having themes of discrimination and xenophobia in role-playing games, there's always this question about, is there a place for it? And obviously with the rise of like the X card and accessible safe spaces for people, there is less likely that people would want to have these themes. And rightly so. When I started doing the roleplay at Bad Moon Cafe, I started and I did a kids on bikes one shot. And I had four guys playing and one of the guys was clearly playing a sort of non-binary effeminate character. And then this other guy who came who was a bit older and he was playing the older brother of another character who was very gruff and a biker and all that sort of thing. And there was a moment, because I said to everyone, I said like, okay, look, I know it's the 80s, but let's play to the top of our intelligence. Let's not be those people. And there was a moment where the person playing the non-binary feminine character was freaking out because they've seen something in the woods, it's really scary. And the guy playing the biker sort of turned to me and said, I would say this, because this is my character, stop being a big girl's blouse, and then suddenly started making gay slurs. And I was like, well, I did just say, that's not okay at my table. Uh, can you not do that again? And he's like, oh, but I, I would say that. So I, yeah. I belong to the Hackney area, tabletop enthusiasts, aka hate, who are very rowdy, rambunctious men who work hard and then come and play 40k, Warhammer, you know, Frostgrave. And they make such a strong point of being a liberal club. Their rules are like insane good and everyone is welcome. Unfortunately, most of us are men because we haven't been able to, you know, this is just how we've all come together. I joined that group, have had great experiences, like got to play so many games, but I realized there's lots of like war game enthusiasts that replay world war one world war two stuff and i'm like oh so how do you pick like you want to be on a certain side right i mean it's not so much in role playing as maybe war gaming but that to me now is like a questionable thing like why would you want to replay a real life battle where you know potentially there is like an evil and a good side you know you'd hope people would understand stuff like that it's it's a scary thing right so we rely on players now being woke to use that expression being politically kind and compassionate to other players around the table. But we all know, like, outside our lovely liberal bubble, there are people who wouldn't think twice about playing, even playing a traditional D&D game and being a horrible, homophobic, oh, my malignment is evil, chaotic type of character and not worrying. Yeah, it's a minefield when you decide to pick up such a sensitive topic. I disagree strongly with the idea of saying role-playing games should never have racism, homophobia, this and this and this and that. I don't like absolutes. 
So my position is the following. Your games should never be racist, homophobic, and all these things. They should not be the thing. My view is that games could include one of these themes. But the second point, on top of not being themselves those things, is you need the consent of your player and you need a, an ongoing conversation. Consent is not just agreeing beforehand on things. It might be misunderstanding, assumptions. That's why the X card is for. And I, I say that as someone who is still struggling using an X card. I think, on the contrary, that role-playing games are a good place to address those subjects. And then we go in my third condition, which is those things should not be asides. They're not there to color the thing. I don't believe in historical accuracy because people overestimate way too much what we know of about what used to be. But I do encourage you to play historical games. But if you play the Haunted West, a game set in the Far West, and you want to integrate racism in that or homophobia or whatever, these things need to be, to a, in a significant extent, part of the subject of the game. If you're having an adventure and racism is involved, it needs to be the subject of the game. Of course, it needs consent, but it needs to be upfront in a way to say, okay, we want to do this game because we want to explore as an exercise to understand what is going on. It's a wide spectrum. I'm a big believer of entertainment with a subtext which is educational behind it. Certainly, it affects fantasy and Western settings more than, say, sci-fi. Because I think in sci-fi, we get to that point where we know there are aliens out there, and like we've referred to it before, Star Trek, for example, there is obviously the utopian of certainly humans, people of colour, interracial kissing and all that sort of thing from the original Star Trek back in the 1950s. Like, that was such a big thing. But then, of course, you have, oh, we're against the Klingons, though. If you take Star Wars... There's a lot of racism going on. There's even fascism going on. But it's sort of in the background and not really addressed. It's very Disney-fied. When you play the role-playing game, well, there's a sort of decision of, I can see how things could go the, the wrong way uh, with that. I mean, the fascination. I agree. There is a place for exploring themes of racism and xenophobia. It's how we learn is through storytelling and how we sort of come to deal with it, as you so eloquently put, Callum. The world is not nice. Whether you use role-playing games to escape from it or to engage with it in a safe way and then learn from it and then be able to take that knowledge that you've sort of gained and then apply it to the world around you and make a difference yourself. And that's sort of up to you. We'll just touch on a point, Mira, that you put in the notes, the brutality and how you weren't too sure about it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit as well? Because I think it'll fit into what we've just talked about. It was like video nasty types of torture and horribleness, right? It was, am I being oversensitive? It was like a lot. No, no, there's a lot. And it was worse than I remember. And as a young father, I did not remember the scene with the eggs. I think the first time I saw it, there were a lot of violent sort of jokes, humor which I took much more positively back then than I did this time. So I thought that this age, not great personally, but at the same time, I'm split on the violence because a bit like the subject of do you address racism in RPGs and so on, I've become a big consumer of history podcasts. Dan Carlin, a martyr, made History on Fire. And what they describe is situations which were truly horrific. 
And again, that's my issue with movies about history, like Dunkirk, and you see Dunkirk, and you see the heroism, and, and so on. And we see the battle, and even saving Private Ryan, you know, oh, this is violent, etc. But when you start having someone read to you the diaries of a soldier, this is way more horrific than anyone can picture. And these are things we are not submitted to. So on one hand, I would say, yeah, the violence, is it very necessary in this regard? On the other hand, I'm like, yeah, it, it is, because reality is is even worse, really. So on one hand, yeah, maybe it's, it's too much. On the other hand, it's, it's not enough, because real life horror is worse than that. Go on, Mira, are you going to say something? I feel like that's so interesting. The, the difference with me and Callum is Callum goes, seeks out, like, I want to hear the real pain, and I will do anything to run away from it and avoid it, because, you know, life is hard. And I would just say, thank goodness that we can now watch these kind of movies, like on Netflix, when I could see there was going to, people were being tortured, I could like just squiff forward by like five seconds and miss it because I can't, I can't watch that. I'm so squeamish. But in a way, what Callum is saying is really kind of resonating because people do need to watch this stuff. We do need to be aware of it. And like, I can run and hide. I know the issues are still there and maybe it's good that I have this little refreshing reminder as long as I can fast forward the torture and the violence. I feel that if the whole film had been found footage, there would have been a lot more brutal. And the reason I say that is because I think nowadays with the access to like Facebook Live and breaking news and stuff, and the fact people have their phones out filming these, you know, bombing in Syria, people getting stabbed, that sort of like, it's frightening how people will just film it and it'll be up there. There's a lot of brutality in this, which could be seen as un- unnecessary. For me, it has been normalised in a way because so much of breaking news is so prevalent, certainly in our social media and stuff. And again, we don't actively look out for it, not at all. But I think it's something that this film couldn't predict 10 years ago. We only just got Facebook then. The ability to stream or show people what you are doing right now is a very recent phenomenon. And whether or not it should be used to promote positivity or negativity there's usually two things, isn't it? It's usually negative stuff or pornography. It's it's sort of those sort of things. Anyway, we'll move on from that. Do you think we should recommend this movie for tabletop RPGs? Callum, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's down the lane for RPG fans, definitely. Unlike a lot of movies, especially a character of Wickers, you got this aspect of, as role player. How many times we run a scenario, an adventure, which is the premise of a big Hollywood movie. I mean, most big Hollywood movie would be very boring to play as players because it's success, 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 success. And decisions which happen to be the good decisions or the like. You look at something like Sherlock, for instance, Sherlock Holmes. It's something impossible to play as a role player because you don't have this level of working out the clues and so on. And District Night is one of the few movies where you see a character. It could be based on a game session of a role-playing game because the character is trying stuff, having some success, some failure, not taking the right decisions, just trying things. It's a mini sandbox. The movie itself could be the result of one session. Amira, what do you think? Whenever someone says to me, oh, do you think we could gamify this? I'm like, hell to the air. Because then... I don't have to sit through all the torture. I can just change it to my will. I mean, there's a bunch of like cool uh, RPG scenarios you could put in here. So one of the plot points is aliens are trying to scramble a spaceship back together to build it. 
that is a classic. Go and fetch all the parts of this amulet to kind of get the power back. So you can imagine aliens kind of scrambling through slum districts to find the elements that will help their spaceship go. Also, I see a lot of like terrain and wargaming and I was imagining, you know, you could probably use those sets. Like that would be quite a fun thing. Having your two adversaries across these kind of slum terrains and some huts are going to blow up because they're full of alien tech and things like this. You know, some strategic wargaming going on. I also thought, I don't know if this is, it might be a masquerade, but like where you start off as human, but you are infected by the alien this means your stat block will change because you'll get alien super skills. But at the same time, you're going to lose your, I don't know, you might lose your wife as a result of this. So, I mean, there's a bunch of fun RPG scenarios you could play. I definitely see elements from both of that sort of thing. So, Callum, that idea of being caught up in something big and historical, but unable to fight against it. That could apply to any RPG system. Having a small group of heroes trying to fight against the oppressive system, even though they're a part of it themselves and changing it. And then what you were just saying there, Mira, that idea of we are this sort of person, but then we are changed in some way. Do we then become more the word is humane, but it's not really, is that do you become more well-rounded? Do you become more empathetic to other people who are in worse situations than yourself through forced change? Maybe District 9 doesn't do it as well, but the idea, like we talked about it briefly, about seeing or learning about different historical events that aren't necessarily westernised. Cultures are not going to be like your own. And when you're world-building, we shouldn't have worlds that are exactly like yours. I mean, it's a good place to start, perhaps. But why not look and and research respectfully other people's cultures and stuff and then recreate it, again, being appropriate with it, and then sharing it with your players saying, this is a world, you never guess where it's based off. What if we flipped the whole film on its head? So say we were going to do the sequel to District 9, but instead of obviously the aliens getting stranded on Earth outside of Johannesburg, if it was humans are coming to an alien planet and they get stranded and then they are stuck. Like the flip side where humans are put into a district and the aliens are like, we need them gone. Would we have the same dynamic? But the idea of flipping it on its head, like suddenly it's a bit like um, Planet of the Apes, for example, like the, certainly the Tim Burton remake. Yeah. They they made that movie, right? Charlton Heston is Mm -hmm. like completely subjugated. The other humans have no voices. They've lost the ability to speak. And then he leaves to come back to find out that humans created this issue. And then the rest of the movies, the old ones anyway, are just him in like the civil rights courts, you know, with some enlightened liberal apes trying to help him out. Right. I guess. Wow. Just made that connection. So I'm not sure it would work because people would not make the connections because they they see themselves under a situation and they're like, of course, of course, we are the victims. They don't have the situation of showing something which is clearly not them and showing them as the victim. And then they realize, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a word dynamic in there, which I feel you need to show the others as big the victims. So you learn that lesson because otherwise it's almost too straightforward and you kind of lose the point of the, the comparison with real life situations where people see people as foreign, different, remote to to them and their own situation. Okay, so we'll move on to the next question then. Which RPGs would be great to adapt this movie into? So Callum, you had a few ideas for this, didn't you? 
at some point at the beginning I was wondering paranoia, you know, for the stupidity, corporate things, the forms, following orders which don't make sense. So there was a dimension with that, but it's it's too comedic. Then I was wondering horror each time there's something slightly horrific. Uh, the go-to is dread, but uh, I thought it wasn't quite working because it's not so much about this increasing chances of perishing, which is really the dread concept. And then I started thinking of Call of Tulu. And first Call of Tulu because there's this idea of there's a reality, there's a truth, if you will, which is the truth of the Elder God, which is a horrifying truth. But in this case, the truth which is horrifying is the truth of the exploitative nature of the corporate for which Vickers work and society in general, human society towards uh, those four aliens. And this truth is, especially with the moment when he's being experimented on, are driving them in mad. I think it's it's more interesting in a way, I guess, maybe to some extent, like the Matrix is a metaphor for, oh, well, but what if we were living in a society and we don't understand what is really going on? Maybe Call of Duty is like that in a way, but yeah, it would be interesting to take the rules of sanity of the character going through because he's facing this realization about privilege he has. And then it reminded me of a conversation I had with Kenneth Hyde about the fall of Delta Green, which is um, a new version of Call of Duty, specifically set just before the Vietnam War in the 60s. And I thought it was even better because not only they kept the sanity rules, which would definitely apply with District 9, but then on top of that, they got rules, which I don't know the, the actual name. I was trying to Google it. I couldn't find it. But it, they are sort of social rules. And the way it is, like sanity, is how your social bounds around you start to be impaired more and more and become beyond repair. So I really like this idea of having a, a scale of yeah, more and more your your contacts with normal society are, are, are being impaired. And uh, Mira, what were you thinking in terms of RPGs for this? There's a Star Trek-themed RPG that I really want to play called um, Prime Directive. Have you played that one, Callum? Prime Directive? No, is that the GURPS one? Yes. I think, you know, something like putting that kind of spin on it, like where you had like a federation kind of thing, how that would go on with like them discovering this situation and stuff like that could be kind of fun. And then I couldn't think of one that would fit this in. But I'm going to have to look up all the stuff Callum's been talking about. How about you, Fee? I'm just showing off my kind of complete not knowing enough systems to kind of match up to this movie. Not at all. I hadn't heard of Prime Directive, so I thought that was quite interesting. Well, it has like a bunch of zany alien species. And it's like around the original series. You get the opportunity to like have romance with alien female captains and stuff like this. So I just thought that kind of be kind. That kind of probably says too much about my personality. Let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) My suggestions, there's two categories, generic settingless systems and specific systems where what we've discussed about certain scenarios. So the two, I thought, sort of generic settingless systems, which anyone can play, is Savage Worlds. Very, very simple system where you could just build your whole world on it. One thing I really like about that system when you do initiative in combat, it changes every round, but instead of rolling a dice, it's using a pack of playing cards. So you can go at any time during a round. So you're not planning per se, you just, things are happening. And I feel like with some of the scenes in District 9, where the way things are happening all the time, you can't plan. You just have to go from one round to another, to another, to another. 
And then the other generic system I was thinking of was Fate or Fate Core or Fate Accelerated. Because again, it's one of those ones where you can create your worlds as well. And they use something, I'll get this wrong now, no doubt, but it's called Aspects. Everyone can create an aspect to add it to a scene. And whilst it's on the GM to sort of like manage it and sort of rule it, you can create any aspect and then use it in the game to help you or for a friend to help as well. It's not just the GM creating the world. So I thought the way this is portrayed, you could add any aspect to it and you could sort of be off the wall. You were saying before about doing like an Ocean's Eleven type. We've got to get the fits together. What's in this crowd? What can I see? How can I do the dealings with this person? So specific systems, though, only one of this I have played. I've played Mars Colony. It's a two player game. And essentially what it is, is that there's a colony on Mars that has just been established. And the saviour of Mars, someone called Kelly Perkins, has to resolve the issues whilst not being found out because they are maybe not the best person for the job. And the other person plays the governor, which is all these other NPCs and all these other things. And it's fascinating because I've recorded this for my podcast very recently with my good friend David. And by the end of it, when we finished, it was such an emotional journey we had together. This should have been a film. In Mars Colony, the way you set it up, there's like four factions or four groups. There's like red, blue, yellow, and I think purple is the other one. I can't remember off the top of my head. Those are the political groups that have certain interests at heart. But then you you have to base them on political groups in the real world. But obviously they don't have to take on... So red doesn't have to be, for example, Labour. You know, it could be any group. As long as you know vaguely what their main aims is, it can influence the game. And that was really cool to see that and having different agendas and stuff. And yeah, there's certain things like obviously sorting out immigration problems and how do you deal with that sort of situation when it's you don't necessarily agree with what your associated government is saying. The other one which I haven't played much of is Urban Shadows, which is again is a very political, I think dystopian type RPG. And then completely randomly I also thought of Tales of the Loop, which is obviously a very lovely sci-fi game set in Sweden, seeing this massive ship hovering over Johannesburg. And if you've ever looked at any Tales of the Loop sort of images or, or illustrations, they have massive machinery in this gorgeous sort of Sweden foggy landscape. Again, that's very sort of westernised European. You've also got down here The Beast, Callum, for your yes. things. Do you want to explain that? As someone who has played The Beast, I don't know if Mira's ever played it or heard of it, but maybe explain what it is. I know a lot of role-playing games, but mainly because I listen about them on podcasts. And uh, I did do my homework and listen to um, your show, Fiona, which is really good. One of the episodes I listened to was your episode about the Beast. Well, that's what I like with indie games, is that you can focus on one very specific element. And you mentioned Kafka. I thought it would be very good to explore. I think it's part of the movie, really. The, the question of sexuality and transformation and interspecies relationship happening in District 9. So as I was watching it, I was thinking, hang on a minute. If I really wanted to explore the idea like uh, as a role player and go very deep mentally of oh, what is it like if, if I would start to transform in this creature and I'm lost among them and what does it mean that I'm losing my relationship with my family, with my wife? I still need relationships and engage with people, including engaging with them physically. The Beast is quite interesting to explore this very weird and comfortable, intimate subject. I, I mean, I listened to you recording yourself playing it, and it's funny because you, you sort of made it as a lost footage thing, almost like in your form. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was quite fascinating. 
So The Beast is essentially a 21-day RPG. You have a deck of cards which have prompts on them, and then each day you pick up the card, read the prompt, and write in a diary. And the premise is you are having a relationship with The Beast. As you're playing it over the 21 days, you get to that point where you're like not thinking about it constantly, but there's a moment where you, you look back on previous things and you start to create that narrative of like, it's a secret. You, no one else knows about this. Is it because you're not telling people? Why are people going to react like this? And then what do you do? All these cards were, again, they're, they're supposed to be thought-provoking and push you to the limit. As the days went on, there was lots of red flags about, oh, the beast says this and the beast says that. And, and I was just a bit like, if that was a friend of mine telling me this, I'd be telling them to get out of that relationship. But it was me. And then by the end, the way it ended... I was kind of like, I don't know what I would have done if it had happened in real life to me. We've talked quite a bit about applications and ideas to tabletop RPGs from this film. If you could pick like one thing that we've spoken about, what would it be? Mira, what do you think like in terms of applications to theme? I just think there's a lot to be said for looking at the alien-human dynamic and how you play on either side and integrate that. I mean, I think that's a great thing. Like, you're not constricted to one race, but you can morph between the two and pick up various ideas and, you know, just really control the game through the randomness of how your character evolves. I think that would be super fun. And Callum? I think it's always a, a, a nice... Uh, yeah, I think it's tropey at this stage. The idea of the... The monsters not being the monster, being the good guy, and humans being the actual monsters, or whatever you describe the monster, or the, the witch, actually the witch is the good one. If you want to do that, go check Uncaged, uh, the, the anthology. It's all about it's all about monsters not being the actual monsters. To me, again, because I'm a sucker for found footage, stuff, it's like framing stories from an outside source, or second and third hand, and having to read between the lines to get the actual truth of it. Thank you so much for joining the class today and your participation. You can find the RPG Academy on Twitter at the RPG Academy and all the various shows on the podcatcher of your choice. Please consider supporting us via the Patreon. I'd like to take this moment to say thank you to my guests. And if we could go around, probably starting with Mira first, anything you'd like to plug anywhere we can find you and what are you up to in the next couple of weeks, I guess? come find us in the podcast zone at Dragon Meet, which is happening in West London on the 30th of November. Uh, yeah, if I manage to get out some girls on tour podcasts, come listen to them. But mostly my favourite thing to do is go and guest on other people's podcasts so I get to play games. And Callum? I'm Callum from the Rollist podcast, discussing all the things I, I don't know much about except what I heard on other podcasts, uh, having guests to, to talk about them. It's about connecting random subjects with role-playing games and going across countries. Yeah, we'll be at the podcast zone at Dragon Meet. Please do come join us. And usually I interview people who visit us, so you might end up on an episode. And I must say a big thank you, Fiona, for hosting and editing this show, uh, because that's the concept of film studies. Anyone can contact me as part of the faculty of the RPG Academy. If you have a good RPG show and you're interested in doing a film studies, contact us and we'll see uh, if uh, we can have you. If you host and edit the show, you pick the movie. I'm Fiona. I'm the host and regular GM for What Am I Rolling, which is a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. Past one-shots have included stuff like Honey Heist, Dungeons & Dragons. We've just done The Lost Kenku that's come out. We've done Fate Accelerated, Sins, Star Wars, and many, many more. 
You can find out more about What Am I Rolling on the website, which is www.wairpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WAIR underscore podcast. The final thing I'm going to quickly plug is that I am on a regular D&D show called Zerios. I play a human barbarian called Aubrey Amblecrown, who's basically like me, but apparently more decisive and not very good at negotiation. It's a D&D 5th edition series that's on the TBA Mondays D&D channel, which is a clear big in-joke, just because all the player characters have the initials TBA. So please come check that out. <laughs>